you're watching the lead uh, after this hearing. We're joined now by a member of the House Select Committee who played a leading role in today's hearing, uh, California Democratic Representative Pete Aguilar. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. We heard numerous Trump insiders admit that John Eastman's legal theory didn't hold water in any way. Uh, One of them, Eric Hirschman, even said to Eastman, are you out of your effing mind? John Eastman, according to testimony, himself admitted uh, that such an argument would lose nine to zero at the Supreme Court, although originally he said seven to two. Um, Why is it important for the committee to establish for the public that they all understood, including Trump and Eastman, that this was not legal, this was not constitutional? Well, it's important to build off of the second hearing. And in the second hearing, we heard very clearly that the president knew he lost the election. And so what we wanted to establish in this third hearing was that not only did he know he lost the election, but he knew that these theories, these purported legal theories, had no basis in law. We needed to establish that because it's so important that the campaign is the pressure cooker of a campaign on Mike Pence gets closer to January 6th, uh, it's only because every possible remedy uh, has been extinguished. He loses 62 cases in state and federal court. Uh, The timeline and the calendar is not helpful. And so he gravitates to this crazy theory. And so that's what's important to underscore here. And then obviously how that led to the violence and that he was willing to put his own vice president in physical danger just to stay in power. On December 1st, 2020, uh, Gabe Sterling, who was an elections official, a Republican down in Georgia, made a public plea to President Trump to stop the lies because somebody was going to get killed. Um, We heard a similar comment today uh, relayed by White House attorney Eric Hirschman, who who told John Eastman that his crazy legal theory would cause riots in the streets. And Hirschman says that Eastman responded with something to the effect of, there's been violence in the history of our country to protect democracy. What was your response when you heard Eastman kind of brush off the idea that all of this was going to cause violence and riots? It's absolutely scary. Look, as someone who was in the Capitol and on the House floor that day, uh, it's scary hearing that because they were clearly willing to sacrifice the safety of members of Congress and and the vice president uh, just to stay in power. And clearly this was something that even in the days leading up to January 6th, uh, his advisors knew was going to be dangerous uh, and knew uh, that there could be concerns about individual safety. We're just learning that the committee sent a letter to Ginny Thomas, uh, who is a conservative activist and uh, obviously also the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. What can you tell us about this letter? Uh, What are you asking for? What do you want to know more about? I'm not going to talk about specific interactions that we have with potential witnesses, but what I can tell you is that our threshold test has and will always be uh, whether someone can provide information that is relevant uh, to the January 6th committee. We're talking about protecting democracy and the threat we faced leading up to January 6th. And it wasn't just about one day. It was about this concerted effort that we have continued to talk about um, building up to January 6th. And so individuals who have knowledge should come forward, whether that's Kevin McCarthy or Barry Loudermilk uh, or uh, Ginny Thomas. But what I can tell you also is that there were a lot of conspiracy theories uh, that were thrown around in those, in those times that the president gravitated to. 
Um, there's nothing unique about uh, the, the crazy theories uh, that were floating around uh, the White House at the time. We're also hearing uh, that your committee has not completely closed the door on the notion of hearing from then-Vice President Mike Pence. Is that true? We're focused on these hearings. This hearing was titled Hang Mike Pence, and we feel that we heard uh, from his chief counsel um, uh, who had those experiences. Uh, We're not going to close the door to hearing from anyone, but what I can tell you is that we're going to have a specific set of hearings uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, Our focus is on making sure that those hearings help convey just how fragile our democracy is uh, and how close we came uh, to a democracy uh, having uh, serious, serious concerns uh, that day. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to help um, tell that story. And we're going to do it in a truthful and honest way. But if there is still room to have conversations with anybody um, after that, uh, we're not going to shy away from it. Our work will continue. Obviously, you, I'm sure you would accept a live testimony or recorded testimony from former Vice President Pence. Uh, is there any indication that he hasn't shut the door? I'm not going to get into to any interactions with potential witnesses, but what, what I can tell you is that we're not closing the door on, on talking to anyone uh, who can provide relevant testimony. Uh, but we felt that we made a clear and compelling case that the vice president's safety was in danger, that he was 40 feet away from the mob as he was being evacuated. And I think that's just absolutely stunning um, and that the president's own tweet uh, became such a focal point at 2.24 p.m., uh, toward the violence uh, within the crypt and within the Capitol. Former President Trump is apparently on his social media app, uh, Truth Social, saying he demands equal time. Would you invite him? It sounds like he wants to get something off his chest. Uh, you know, I'll let the chairman uh, speak to, to that offer if it is a real offer. I think that clearly what we also conveyed is that the former president uh, only has a passing relationship with the truth. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we protect the integrity of the committee um, uh, if we took any of those steps. But look, uh, like I've said, uh, you know, any potential witness, uh, no matter who it is, uh, if someone has things to offer, um, you know, we want to be in a position uh, to uh, have those conversations. Uh, the committee referred to some uh, an indictment, I believe, from last year where an informant from the Proud Boys uh, said... Uh, that there were Proud Boys he had heard from. Uh, Specifically, one of them was nicknamed Spaz. I apologize for repeating that nickname. Um, But saying that that he actually had a desire to uh, kill, I believe Spaz was going to kill Pence. I believe somebody else was was willing to kill Pelosi. Um, In any case, how serious do you think those threats were as opposed to bluster uh, from these types of individuals, obviously they were violent individuals if they've if they breached the Capitol. But but beyond that, well, you know, my default, Jake, is going to be that if it ends up in a Department of Justice filing, it's a pretty serious allegation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, with that as my base, I'm going to say that this is this is very real. Uh, we also know from uh, court filings uh, very recently. Uh, that buildings within the Capitol complex uh, could have also been targets. And so what I would say is that, you know, this concerted effort uh, that individuals undertook uh, to threaten the safety of uh, members of Congress who were exercising their constitutional obligations, in addition to senators and the vice president, uh, is is very shocking, and and we shouldn't take it lightly at all. One of the people that you shared uh, questioning duties with today 
uh, was former U.S. Attorney John Wood, I believe from Missouri, who was a Republican-appointed U.S. attorney. Uh, was that, at least in part, an attempt to take the partisanship or the appearance of partisanship out of the hearings, which obviously Republican Leader McCarthy and others have, have not made easy given their boycott of the hearings? Was, was that why Wood participated? John Wood participated uh, in, in those hearings, and I asked him to offer questions with me because he's the senior investigative counsel uh, for the committee. Uh, he was in many of these depositions uh, that we played. Uh, he's an amazing attorney. Um, I, I don't care who appointed him as a U.S. attorney. Uh, and his work product, uh, that and his counterpart, Tim Heafy, who was an Obama uh, 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 assistant, or U.S. attorney, full U.S. attorney, um, they're just amazing individuals who have helped to guide our efforts, and I learned from them uh, the entire time. But you know, I'm not going to accept the premise because that means that there is politics that's uh, we're not taking politics out because there's never been any politics within the January 6th committee. Everything we do is in a apolitical way, and that's why it's been such an honor to serve with uh, the eight colleagues uh, that I serve with on this committee uh, and an amazing staff who has helped guide our efforts. All right, Congressman Pete Aguilar, Democrat of California and a member of the January 6th committee. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Thanks, Coming Dave. up next, new CNN reporting about a disconnect between the January 6th committee and the Biden Justice Department. Stay with us. Welcome back to the lead. Over the last few hours, we heard the January 6th committee lay out new evidence designed to draw a direct line between former President Trump's bogus, bogus claims about the election and that MAGA mob's threats against Vice President Pence's health and life on January 6th. This hearing has been squarely focused on Trump's unconstitutional demands for Pence to overthrow the election results and the deadly chaos that followed at the Capitol premised on that lie. We've been told the federal prosecutors investigating the insurrection have been watching these hearings. So let's bring in CNN's Justice Department correspondent, Evan Perez. Evan, what can you tell us about the status of the Justice Department's probe. Well, Jake, uh, you know, one of the things that the Justice Department is doing is asking uh, the committee to turn over transcripts of about 1,000 interviews that they have done so far. And uh, so far, the committee has declined to provide uh, those transcripts. And so uh, one of the things that just happened uh, today in a court filing that we just, uh, we obtained today, uh, the department is expressing some frustration to the committee. They wrote to the committee saying that we need these interviews because it is causing, is actually causing some delays, not only with uh, their investigation of some of the, the suspects who attacked the, the Capitol on January 6th, but also uh, the prosecution of people who's, uh, who are already charged, people who are uh, scheduled for trial. And in one case, they're asking uh, for one of the trial, uh, trials of, of members of the Proud Boys to be delayed a couple of months because they're waiting to get some of those uh, transcripts. And I'll read you just a part of what it says in this, uh, in this letter to the House uh, Council. It says that it is critical that the department be able to evaluate the credibility of witnesses who have provided statements, statements to multiple government uh, entities in assessing the strength of any potential criminal prosecutions. Uh, and, you know, look, this is very key for lawyers to be able to get discovery from the government. It's part of their ability to defend their clients. And what the Justice Department is saying to, to this committee is uh, you're actually impeding our ability to do our jobs. And as you know, Jake, 
you know, this has been a, there's been a bit of a friction between the committee. Members of this committee have been calling on uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, to move more quickly, to go after people beyond the rioters, to do more and to act more quickly to make sure that people are held accountable for January 6th. And so you're here, you have the committee saying, I'm sorry, you have the, the prosecutors saying, well, you know, it's in your court. This is, uh, the ball is in your court. You need to provide us these transcripts so that we could do our jobs. All right, Evan Perez at the Justice Department for us. Thanks so much. Let's go to Manu Raju on Capitol Hill to get their response. And Manu, you just heard from the January 6th committee chairman, Congressman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, on this issue. What did he have to tell you? Yeah, we just spoke to him about this specifically. He made clear that he views these two things separately. He views the Justice Department investigation moving on its own track. And he said that his committee's investigation will continue to move forward, regardless of what the Justice Department is doing. And he flatly rejected the demands by the Justice Department to turn over those transcripts. We are not going to stop what we're doing to share the information that we've gotten so far with the Department of Justice. We have to do our work. So he was asked whether or not this will be, turn them over this week, and he said no, but he said does that, that does not mean we're going to cooperate. I mean, they have spoken to more than 1,000 witnesses, Jake, and there's been a lot of questions about exactly when those transcripts will be released. Thompson has indicated eventually that they will be released, but potentially that could be months in the, in the making, so it could turn out to further delay the Justice Department's investigation, which is one of their concerns. One other thing, too, Jake, I asked the chairman whether or not his view had changed against making a referral to the Justice Department to investigate Donald Trump over his role over January 6th. Earlier this week, he suggested that was not the way the committee was going. He got some pushback from members of the committee. Just now, he would not go as far as he did earlier this week. He said, we're working as hard as we can to get to the facts and circumstances around what happened. Now, as to when we complete our work, then we'll discuss at that point what we'll do. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. I have two uh, legal experts here with me. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin, first of all, we should note that the committee is, is, ha- has a, a ticking clock, right. right? Republicans are expected to take over the House in November, and they will immediately kill the January 6th committee. They don't want any attention on it at all. So Benny Thompson feels, the, the chairman of the committee, feels a certain pressure to get this done. And the Justice Department doesn't have that pressure because Democrats are going to control the White House uh, at least until 2025. Um, but that said, what do you make of this? I, I, it's, it's peculiar because, you know, we've heard a lot of conversation about whether this committee will, will uh, recommend charges or not, which is a literally irrelevant debate because the Justice Department is going to make that decision regardless of what the, ju- what the committee does. However, this, it, this um, investigative material, these transcripts, this is gold for prosecutors. They need this. If you care about the Justice Department doing a serious investigation and doing it quickly, which is obviously a concern of a lot of these members, they should turn over the material. Now, it sounds like it will get turned, it can turned over at some point, but it doesn't seem to me that photocopies or electronic copies of, these materi- of this material is such a difficult task to turn over 
And if they want to help the Justice Department, they should do it sooner rather than later. I, I find it odd. Why not just, I mean, is the, I, I the committee not have a functioning Xerox machine? What, I, what is, it wouldn't be a Xerox machine. We just copying right. something onto a hard drive or to a thumb drive. Right, it's I an mean, email. Even, I was yeah, joking. It, well, yeah. not an email, but, you know, it would be... It would be. Oh, because of security issues. Well, security issues, and also it's probably, you know, some several megabytes or right. megabytes, I don't know, with the paper. But what's the problem? I, I, you know, they're busy, that's true, but I can't imagine there isn't a, a system that's already in place for them to manage all of this that they can't make access to the Justice Department. But and, what and as, crimes and, could they possibly not be not be charging somebody for? Like it's not well, about, it's I, not I, about the, the people who stormed the Capitol. This is about like the John Eastman. Well, I, I think it could be about both. I think in the first instance, I mean, there may be if you have statements from witnesses that you're going to be calling um, in, in upcoming trim, criminal trials, lower level types, um, you know, you you might have a, you might you know, might be surprised by something that comes out that comes out at the wrong moment during the trial, and 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 the defense gets it, and and you're you're in trouble. I understand why they'd want to have that that testimony, and at the same time, I think there there is an overlap, or there is a uh, I, they want to they want to move up as 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 as. Attorney General Garland said in his January speech about they, they're moving their way up. And the committee of, of those thousand people they've interviewed includes a lot of people. Probably the Justice Department and, and has there's also to a yet. law. There's a law called the Jenks Act. Which yes. says uh, the government and the whole government, not just Congress, not just the uh, executive branch, has to turn over the prior statements of any witness Absolutely. who testifies. It could be Brady material. It could be Brady material, too. So they need to get this material to the to right. the defense in order to try these cases. Yeah. All right, stay with CNN's continuing coverage tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates will take a deep dive into today's testimony. Watch her report right here on CNN. Welcome back to the lead. Some of the testimony that we have heard today is apparently getting under the skin of Donald Trump. Caitlin Collins has some details on that. Caitlin, what are you hearing from your Trump sources? Yeah, Jake, the former president has been watching these hearings very closely. He's been complaining to people that he thinks that the committee is only using testimony that paints him in a negative light. Obviously, a fair amount of the testimony today was from Mark Short, who is Pence's former chief of staff that was with him on that day. That is someone that Trump has really despised ever since January 6th. He even told people he had banned Mark Short from the White House grounds right after January 6th had happened. And my colleagues Gabby Orr and Melanie Zanona are told that even yesterday when Mark Short was on CNN talking to Wolf Blitzer about the concerns he had that day about Mike Pence's safety, they are told that Trump got annoyed with that appearance from Shorts on CNN where he was talking about that. Obviously, today he testified, um, what the committee showed today, that he had testified that he went to the Secret Service the day before January 6th because he said he was concerned about what the former president might do and potentially put the vice president in danger, his safety in danger. That was a concern that he had. And clearly still, those are not concerns that have been taken by the former president. He is still rankled by the fact that my, the Mike Pence's former staff is out there talking about the concerns for his safety on that day. And Jake, one other thing that we learned from this testimony today that I think is important to talk about is that statement that Trump put out early in January 2021 saying that he and Pence were in total agreement about what he could do that day. The committee played testimony from Mark Short and Jason Miller basically arguing about the fact that Jason Miller had put out that statement and it had not been checked with the vice president's office. And they said it was not true. It was an inaccurate statement. That was not how the conversation went down between the former vice president 
president and the former president, who, Jake, we should note, still have not spoken in over a year now. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. It has been remarkable to hear from so many members of Donald Trump's inner circle. Uh, John King is at the Magic Wall now uh, to talk us through. And, of course, uh, we have to start with members of Trump's family. Right. It's not just who we're hearing this from, not just what we're hearing, I mean, but who we're hearing this from. And so this is not coming. The president likes to criticize Democrats or rhinos, Republicans in name only who don't like him. He criticizes anonymous sources. How can he criticize the case being laid out by this committee? It includes his own daughter, Ivanka, saying she respected Bill Barr and accepted his opinion when he said there was no fraud. Today, we heard from Ivanka Trump that she was disturbed when she saw the heated conversation with Mike Pence about that. Uh, Jared Kushner tried to blow off the uh, the the. the Significant. The significance of all this in the White House Counsel's Office. They were threatening to resign if the president went forward. This he uh, try, he sort of blew that off. I think we'll hear more from that. But this is what's interesting. They're laying out. You know, the president was being told by Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and others there was fraud. There was fraud. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Eric Hirschman among the White House attorneys who kept saying, "Show me, show me. We've lost in court. Where's the proof? This is crazy. You need to stop this. It's illegal. Uh, you need and to stop this." We should just this. point out uh, when it comes to Eric Hirschman. I mean, this is a guy who helped defend Donald Trump uh, during the impeachment about Ukraine. This is a guy who likes talking about Hunter Biden's laptop. This is not some secret deep state liberal. I mean, this is a MAGA guy. This is a Trump guy. That's why this is so damning, because it's coming from people very close to Trump himself, including this. We just showed you inside the White House and his family, his campaign. His campaign manager said he told him on election night, we're not going to succeed here. We're not going to succeed here. It's not going to happen. Uh, Jason Miller saying some things to the committee, saying very different things publicly. No surprise <laughs> there to any reporter in this yeah. town. But about how they got it. They are all the people in the campaign who know how to run a campaign, who know the math, who know recounts, saying there's no there there. There's no there there. And we know it. We're not going to win. And we have no evidence. Alex Cannon particularly kept being charged with check out this fraud. Can you find any proof of this fraud? There's this rumors is that he kept saying he kept looking. There was no evidence. Nothing there. And he kept going back to it. And then you're inside the administration, especially the lawyers, right? The lawyers and the top general in the United States, significant. You heard his testimony. He said Mike Pence called him that day. Mike Pence in, with the Secret Service. The riot is still in the Capitol checking in with Mark Milley. What can the military do to help? He never heard from Donald Trump that day. He only heard from Donald Trump's chief of staff. Right. And he said that what uh, Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was focused on was the quote-unquote narrative. That Trump and Milley heard that, that, you know, that Trump was helping out. Right. And Milley said, he testified, he heard that, and he said, that's political. I'm, I'm going to keep away from that. That's not my job. I'm going to focus on what the vice president is talking to me about, which is about actual national security. Right, and so Trump was leaning on the Justice Department. Richard Donahue said the idea was crazy, that they saw no evidence of fraud. You heard Bill Barr, probably the most damning factual witness so far, saying three times he told Trump, we've looked into this, there's no there there. It's crazy, it's BS, stronger language from him. So again, all people, these are all people appointed by Donald Trump or who worked for Donald Trump. These are not people outside. Uh, B.J. Pack, the U.S. attorney, former U.S. attorney in Georgia, was Bill Barr called him said the president says he's hearing they had a suitcase and they brought votes in and they illegally, you know, they brought in fake votes and counted them. He says he, says he looked into that and said, no, actually, that was a lockbox. When they suspended the count, they locked up the ballots, as you would, a secure process. How democracy works. They were preparing to leave the room. They said, actually, let's continue the count. So they took the suitcase out, the lockbox, and opened the ballot. Go back to admin for one second, because I just want to like point out. So sure. BJ Pack did that. He was specific about one charge. We have also heard testimony, I believe, from Donahue and Barr, and I think even Jeffrey Rosen, talking about specific lies about the election uh, and debunking them, explaining right. each one of them, taking them seriously, explaining why they were false. 
Uh, and then the testimony from one of them was then it didn't matter. Trump would then just move on to the next one. Right. That they would debunk something and then he would have another meeting with Giuliani or another conversation with Powell or another conversation with Eastman. He would come back with, OK, then look into this. That was what was so frustrating to them. The president kept asking them. And because of the stakes, they kept looking to see it. So you go through the Trump appointees. And then today, then today, powerful in many ways, A, because the vice president's life was in danger. But B, both Greg Jacob, the vice president's counsel and the chief of staff just talking about essentially from election day on, you know, there was just all this pressure on the vice president. Let's keep finding fraud. And they kept looking into it and they kept pushing and pushing. They keep telling, you know, the vice president kept saying, do I have any right? Is there any option to do here? Just again, damning testimony from inside about how every time Pence went to the president and said, I can't do this. It's no there. He would push again and push some more and push some more. So, again, Donald Trump likes to say fake media. He likes to say rhinos. He likes to say this is all coming from Democrats. These are all people who are loyal to Donald Trump, who worked for Donald Trump, who were right there as all this played out. Who made it to the end. Who Who, made it to the end of the Trump administration. Who made it to the end. And so this is just a sampling. You can understand why he's mad, because his corruptness and his lies are being detailed by people he knows very, very well. Absolutely zero basis for the allegations. I respect Attorney General Barr. so I accepted what he said, was saying. There were suggestions by, I believe it was Mayor Giuliani, to go and declare victory and say that we won it outright. What you're proposing is nothing less than the United States Justice Department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election. It is unambiguous that the vice president does not have the authority to reject electors. I would have laid my body across the road before I would have let the vice president overturn the 2020 election. And so you just see, again, when you bring it all up, that it's, it's incredibly damning. And it comes from people who were loyal to Donald Trump, as you point out, to the end. It also raises another question. What does it take? What is it going to take? for the Republicans who keep trying to just push this aside or say it's a sham committee. Uh, whatever you think of the committee, yes, there were some politics involved in forming the committee. Um, these are all loyal Republicans, loyal Trumpies, uh, saying he knew he lost. He knew it was illegal. He knew it was unconstitutional. He knew it was corrupt. And he kept telling us to do it. What does it take? It'll take a patriotism. It'll take a sense of shame. I'm not sure that either of those exist in abundance right, right. now. Coming up on the lead, law enforcement experts react to the select committee's gripping new account of Vice President Pence's evacuation from the Capitol on January 6th and how dangerously close he was to that MAGA mob. Stay with us. Welcome back to the lead house. Investigators just shared an alarming look at the evacuation of Vice President Mike Pence on January 6th, saying at one point that he was only 40 feet away from the MAGA mob rampaging throughout the Capitol. Let's bring in former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Terry Gaynor and the former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who's a CNN senior law enforcement analyst. Uh, Let let me start uh, with you, uh, Terry Gaynor. Um, As rioters were coming closer to Pence, uh, Trump tweeted uh, about him not showing the courage, not doing what the United States of America needed. Uh, As a law enforcement matter, not as a prosecutorial matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem like that incited the crowd. Absolutely, it did. I think it added to the kind of conversation he had down on the ellipse. And actually, when I heard it, it sounded to me like he could have tweeted, Torah, 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 attack. He gave him the signal to go, and they got worse in the Capitol at that time. And let me just put up the pictures of, of Pence from that day that we got, because I want to ask you how 
close uh, Pence. This is when he's actually underground in a secure location. But before that, you saw the model, the schematic of, of the Capitol, 40 feet away. How close was he actually to danger? He was extremely close. In uh, 40, uh, you know, 40 feet, picture less than half of a football field. So even when he was in his office and rioters were below, the actual distance was pretty close. So we know how to get people in and out of there. We would have been coordinating with the uh, Secret Service. And it relies on having clear access to some of those things. And the access was choking and choking and choking, which could have led to a shootout when he got down to that area where he's 40 feet away from the president, vice that, president. That secure location was uh, several stories underneath the Capitol. We're told, is that, I mean, can people breach it? Is, that, is it possible for a mob to breach it? Well, we hope it's not possible. I, okay. It doesn't do real good for security to be showing everything that we're showing. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So let me ask you something, uh, Deputy uh, FBI Director um, McCabe, because one of the things, one of the documents that the committee leaned on comes from this 2021 prosecution uh, of a Proud Boy uh, and a witness, uh, somebody, an informant in the Proud Boys. And I'm just, I'm just reading from their, uh, their affidavit in support of a criminal complaint in the charges against this individual, Dominic Pizzola. Um, according to the witness, quote, they, meaning the group, said that anyone that they got their hands on would have been killed, including Nancy Pelosi. And also they would have killed Vice President Mike Pence if given the chance. Now that's from a witness who was I suppose, a member of or embedded with the Proud Boys. How do we know that that, I mean, that sounds awful. And certainly if it was describing, you know, me, threat to me and my family, I would be very upset to hear it. But how do we know that that's actually real and not just bluster? If you look at the crowd out that day, I'm sure there are a lot of people saying a lot of things. Well, we don't know, right? So let's remember that this is a cooperating witness, maybe an informant, maybe someone who's been charged and is now cooperating with the government and is being interviewed extensively about everything they saw and spoke and heard uh, over the course of that day. And this statement is that witness's personal assessment of what he thinks his Confederates were capable of in that moment. It's not the same as the witness saying, I asked so-and-so and and he said he was planning to kill the vice president, right? This is just a general assessment of what he thought his his co-conspirators were willing to do in that moment. We don't know how accurate it might be. Maybe he's bluffing a little bit. Maybe he's he's puffing. But nevertheless, the, the language is incredibly damning and it's something that law enforcement takes very seriously. Having seen a lot of the video from the insurrection that day, I am personally surprised more people did not die, uh, given how violent a lot of the the rioters were. What was your reaction? Well, I mean, even the video that came out yesterday of the individual who was touring the uh, some of the Capitol grounds with Representative Loudermilk on the day before the riot. So when that the video that came out yesterday, that individual was talking about dragging Nancy Pelosi and AOC out of the Capitol by their hair. We're going to take them out. I mean, those words are not insignificant. Like that's you heard those sort of statements repeatedly across the crowd. We heard some of that today mm-hmm. in the comments about hang Mike Pence and, uh, you know, Mike Pence has uh, betrayed the country. So there's no question. I'm, I'm shocked that more people uh, didn't get uh, seriously hurt. All right. Andrew McCabe and Terrence Gaynor, thank you so much. Still ahead on the lead, I'm going to talk one-on-one with a key member of the January 6th committee, Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California. And on our world lead, two Americans fighting alongside Ukraine in the war against Russia are now missing. I'm going to talk to the mother of one of them about why her son decided to join that fight. That's next. Stay with us. 
This is CNN Breaking News. Hello and welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper and we begin this hour on Capitol Hill where the January 6th Select House Committee has wrapped up its bombshell third public hearing in 2022. We're learning former President Trump is watching the hearings and, as is his wont, complaining to his confidants that so much of the testimony painted him in a negative light. And he was rankled by the fact that Mike Pence's former staff is out there talking about what happened behind the scenes. The focus of the hearing today, Trump's pressure campaign to try to force his vice president to follow an unconstitutional, fringe, and nonsensical legal theory that claimed the vice president had some sort of power to overturn the results of the election all by his lonesome. But the committee laid out proof that President Trump was told over and over and over again that the theory was not legally sound and that president was told by multiple people that Vice President Pence was not planning to go along with the scheme. Mr. Short, is it, was it your impression that the vice president had directly conveyed his position on these issues to the president, not just to the world through a dear colleague letter, but directly to President Trump? Many times. And had been consistent in conveying his position to the president? Very consistent. Did John Eastman ever admit, as far as you know, in front of the president that his proposal would violate the Electoral Count Act? Uh, I believe he did on the 4th. In addition, a highly respected conservative and retired federal judge, J. Michael Ludig, told the committee today that he believes that if Pence had obeyed Trump's orders and declared Trump to be the next president, that that would have plunged the United States of America into what he called a situation, quote, tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis. Thankfully, Pence did not. And Pence told the president the morning of January 6th, that he would not in a phone call that was described as heated. Did you hear any part of the phone call, even if just this, the end that the president was speaking from? I did, yes. All right, and what did you hear? So as I was dropping off the note, um, I, I, my memory, I remember hearing the word wimp. Either he called him a wimp. I don't remember if he said, you are a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Wimp is the word I remember. Something to the effect, this is, the wording's wrong. I made the wrong decision four or five years ago. And the, the word that she relayed to that the president called the vice president, I apologize for being impolite, but do you remember what she said her father called him? The P word. Our investigation found that early drafts of the January 6th ellipse speech prepared for the president included no mention of the vice president. But the president revised it to include criticism of the vice president and then further ad-libbed. Then President Trump did not stop there. The committee revealing today that President Trump sent a tweet attacking his vice president after aides had told the president that there was violence at the Capitol where Mike Pence was. The tweet, quote, poured gasoline on the fire, according to one Trump White House aide. According to the committee, the mob surged in the minutes after that tweet and was able to overwhelm the police. Two minutes after that tweet, Pence was evacuated from his place in the Capitol to a secure location underneath the Capitol while he came in contact or came close to contact within 20 feet, 40 feet rather, of the rioters. The committee today released these never-before-seen photos of the vice president and his family hiding underground from the mob. And there he is. You see him tending to the business of government as well. CNN's Manit Raju is on Capitol Hill with the big takeaways from the hearing and the new details. We are learning about the conversations between 
then President Trump, and then Vice President Mike Pence in the days before the insurrection. I'm telling you, if Pence cave, we're going to drag motherfuckers through the streets. Then President Donald Trump riling up his supporters on January 6, 2021. And directing their anger towards Vice President Mike Pence. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Trump personally putting the pressure on Pence in a tense phone call that morning. He called him a wimp. It was a different tone than I'd heard him take um, with the vice president before. Do you remember what she said? Her father called him the P word. Later tweeting an attack on Pence after rioters had breached the Capitol. All as Trump had been told repeatedly that Pence had no authority to simply reject state's electoral college votes as he presided over the congressional certification of the 2020 election. Was it your impression that the vice president had directly conveyed his position on these issues to the president, not just to the world through a dear colleague letter, but directly to President Trump? Many times. And had been consistent in conveying his position to the president? Very consistent. The committee focusing today on the role of Trump attorney John Eastman, who pushed the theory that the vice president could overturn Joe Biden's victory. All we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at 1 o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it. Privately, White House officials were alarmed and pushed back on Eastman. Yeah, they thought he was crazy. I said, are you out of your effing mind? Even Fox News personality Sean Hannity sending these text messages to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, saying on January 5th, I'm very worried about the next 48 hours. But as he was peddling the theory, Eastman knew it was bogus, writing in October 2020 that nowhere does it suggest that the president of the Senate gets to make the determination on his own. Pence's formal counsel recalling tense deliberations in the White House, including this demand from Eastman on January 5th. What most surprised me about that meeting was that when Mr. Eastman came in, um, he said, I'm here to request that you reject the electors. He came in and um, expressly requested that. And as Trump and Pence were privately sparring about the vice president's role, Trump issued a statement saying he and the vice president were in total agreement that Pence had the power to act. We were shocked and disappointed uh, because whoever had written and put that statement out, it was categorically untrue. The message came from Trump. He dictated, uh, he dictated most of it. Had Trump succeeded, former Judge Michael Ludig offering this stark warning would have plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution, the first constitutional crisis since the founding of the Republic. Now we're also learning that John Eastman 
asked to be included in a potential list of pardons in the aftermath of January 6th. Now, he did not cooperate with the committee. In fact, he, when he was brought before them, he actually pleaded the fifth many times when he asked a number of questions. And we're also, Jake, learning about some of the next steps the committee wants to take, one of which is to actually interview the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Jitty Thomas, who's a conservative activist. She had emailed Eastman and also pushed to overturn the electoral results. Thompson telling us earlier, the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, telling us that they have sent a letter to Thomas asking for her to come in and answer their questions. All right, Manu Raju on the Hill for us. Thanks so much. With me in studio to discuss, former Congressman Denver Riggleman. He's a former senior technical advisor to the January 6th committee and a former Republican congressman. Also with us, Carrie Cordero. She's a CNN legal analyst and a former counsel to the U.S. Assistant Attorney General. Carrie, let me just start with you. The, the testimony from Ivanka Trump, former White House attorney Eric Hirschman, and other aides about Trump's phone call with Mike Pence the morning of January 6th, which uh, was described by, uh, as heated, in which Trump apparently called Pence a wimp and a pussy. Uh, the, the president, one, one of the testifiers, one of the witnesses said the president took on a different tone with the vice president than he'd ever heard before. I think Vivanka said that. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to that? Well, I think what the committee did a very effective job with, with testimony and deposition video from people who were in the White House, who were advising the president himself, was that they showed the intense pressure that he was placing on the vice president. We all saw the public pressure that was taking place. I mean, he stood out in front of the Capitol building and and pressured the vice president. But now we know that there also was this call where he was intensely pressuring him. And then what I think the committee did effectively is they drew that line from that pressure to the threat of violence that the vice president was under. And I think making that connection is a little bit something new. I think they moved the needle forward today by drawing that line more carefully. And, and uh, Congressman, for the first time, the committee showed just how close in actual feet uh, Pence and his family, we should note, because his family was with him too, yeah. came uh, to this rabid mob. Um, take a listen. Vice President Pence and his team ultimately were led to a secure location where they stayed for the next four and a half hours, barely missing rioters a few feet away. Approximately 40 feet. That's all there was. 40 feet between the vice president and the mob. And we've heard testimony from members of the mob, or at least an informant that was uh, embedded with the Proud Boys of some sort, saying that there was a desire, at least spoken, to kill Pence or Pelosi specifically. What was your reaction when you heard that 40 feet? You know, my whole life has been in counterterrorism. And so when I look at this and what the committee is doing, we are actually looking at a terrorism investigation. And you had a mob that close to the vice president at that time. And I think that's the thing that struck me from the beginning when you look at all the interviews, you look at the data that we've compiled, is that how close the mob was and the fact that how they were radicalized. And I think that's what scared me today. You know, when you're looking or or when you're listening to this type of advice, you know, that that the president was getting from people like Eastman, I I honestly believe I'm glad there's a lawyer here today uh, about what I'm about to say. But I think they could have got better legal advice from LegalZoom. And it's pretty amazing to me, too, that when you talk about what happened, it seemed like Trump and his advisors were copy pasting sort of conspiracy addled Internet trolls and that using that to shape their legal arguments. And I think that's that's what strikes me when I watch what happened today, the case that they're laying out, which was very Actually, it was just very thorough. And, and listening to that and list, looking at how close those individuals came to Vice President Pence, who I know and have talked to, and his wife, right? We know them. We've, we've talked to them. My wife and I, you know, when you see this and when you watch something like this, it really hits home 
how ridiculous this was, what, what the type of arguments that were being presented to the president, but that this is a terrorism investigation. Um, no different than if it were ISIS terrorists or al-Qaeda terrorists storming the Capitol, posing a threat. Man, I don't know if I, you know, getting technical on this, but when you look at how, you know, the coordination happened, when you look at the other groups that are involved, you know, the committee hasn't gotten to the rally planners yet. The committee hasn't gotten to the people on the ground yet, you know, the day of. The committee hasn't talked about the state legislators yet a lot, right? They, they mentioned the alternate electors. There's still multiple groups. The committee has just touched the service in these first three hearings. I think the next three hearings is going to build on this. And this is a terrorism problem. It's a coordination problem. But it's also us looking at what we call the techniques, tactics, and procedures of the TTPs of these groups and actually digging in into how they were able to do this. And um, Barbara Comstock, a former Republican congresswoman from Virginia, former yeah. colleague of no, yours, just retweeted. So this is not her, but her, she, her response is exactly. And as somebody writing, John Eastman getting indicted but not Trump would be like Tom Hagen going to jail while Michael Corleone keeps opening casinos. That's obviously a Godfather reference, so I apologize to people who are not well-versed, but the idea is that this, is, this would be like a lower-level person as opposed to who's the person who's actually in charge. Do you agree with that basic idea? Well, I think they're getting closer, though. I really do. And I'm not one of the observers who has thought that we necessarily were going to get to a place where we would see the former president prosecuted. But with the information that has now come out with respect to his lawyer, John Eastman, we have um, clear evidence now that John Eastman was told and that the president was likely told that what was the plot that they were engaging in was illegal. So there's the testimony of Mr. Hirschman, who was a White House counsel, who told John Eastman, you better get a lawyer. Um, Greg Jacobs was incredibly, I think, compelling in terms of the arguments that he had in the back and forth that he had with Mr. Eastman, that their plan was completely illegal and uh, just a complete abomination of, of an interpretation of law. And so I think the next piece then is, is was Eastman then advising the president, the former president, all of this? And then does the Justice Department, is the Justice Department willing to go forward with a theory of con- that conspiracy to defraud the United States is what this whole activity was? Or is That's sep- the question. Yeah, or is there a separate status, a separate tier of law for for? presidents. They get to do things that the rest of us wouldn't get away with. I think that's another question. Thanks to both of you for being here. Uh, former Congressman Denver Riggleman, Kerry Cordero. He died after being brutally beaten by insurrectionists while trying to defend the Capitol. The longtime partner of U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick will join us next after sitting in today's hearing. Then two American veterans voluntarily fighting alongside Ukrainian soldiers go missing. The growing fear that they've been captured by the Russian military as the U.S. State Department says a third American is now reportedly missing in Ukraine. We're going to talk to the mom of one of the missing. Stay with us. Video of rioters chanting, hang Mike Pence, played during today's January 6th House Select Committee hearing. The vice chair, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, said Trump was aware of these chants when he said, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Let's talk about all of it with the former partner of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, Sandra Garza. Brian, obviously, as we all remember, suffered two strokes and died the day after he confronted rioters on January 6th and was so brutally and violently attacked. There was something that was said today that I immediately thought of Brian and you, which was a conversation that Trump White House attorney Eric Hirschman had with John Eastman, who was pushing this insane theory uh, that helped incite and inspire the crowd that day. Uh, let's, uh, let's play that clip of, of Hirschman describing his conversation with John Eastman. 
is that you're going to turn around and tell 78 plus million people in this country that your theory is this is how you're going to invalidate their votes because you think the election was stolen. And I said, they're not going to tolerate that. He said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And he said, words to the effect of there's been violence in the history of our country, Eric, to protect the democracy or protect the republic. What's your response when you hear about that attorney, according to this account, so blithely dismissing the riots in the street that actually happened, except they happened on the Capitol? It's reprehensible. Uh, you know, he knew that that was going to cause an uproar, and he didn't care. He didn't care how much bloodshed uh, was going to spill uh, or happen that day uh, and said, screw it. I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, a lot of people knew. Uh, I was actually more moved on the first hearing uh, with a lot of the testimony that I heard. I mean, even today as well, but because there was so many people that could have intervened and said, you know what, I'm going to go to the media. I'm going to go to the press. I'm going to scream from the rooftops and try and stop this. Um, they knew Trump intimately. Uh, they knew how dangerous he was, and nobody did anything to stop him. That's interesting. So do you, I, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but mm -hmm. when you see Ivanka Trump right. or Jared Kushner right. or people like that, people who could have had a press conference and a million cameras would have come immediately right. and said, I, and if she had said something like, please don't listen to what my dad's saying, blah, blah, blah. Right. Is that who you're thinking of? And is that what you're thinking of? Absolutely, yes. Uh, Ivanka in particular. I mean, families were decimated because of what happened on the 6th. People died because of what happened on the 6th. I mean, you know, there was children that turned in their parents. There was one young lady who was kicked out of her house and on the street uh, because she turned in her, uh, I think it was her mother, uh, for participating in the insurrection. Um, you know, Jared Kushner said on the video during his uh, testimony that, oh, well, I just took up, uh, you know, the people, the uh, attorneys who were saying they were going to turn in their resignation because of they didn't, you know, they basically had a conscience. Uh, I just took that up to whining. Yeah, he said it was whining. Yeah. Not a big deal. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, just absolutely despicable. Uh, well, it, you know, where's your camera? Talk to your camera. Tell Jared Kushner what you think. Yeah, uh, Jared, Ivanka, I mean, you know, yes, it's hard to stand up to a family member, a father, father-in-law, but you could have done something. You could have avoided the bloodshed that took place, including the suicides that took place after. People died. People are still hurting. You heard Caroline Edwards' testimony. She's still impacted today, and many other officers are still hurting physically and emotionally from what happened on the 6th. And I know Brian was a Republican and I think had, had voted for Trump. And you have yes. a number of House Republicans who are still belittling what happened, saying these hearings are political in nature, et cetera, et cetera. Right. What do you think of that when you hear that? Uh, I'm disgusted and I also am, uh, you know, I have to say very unhappy and disappointed with the Capitol Police leadership. Uh, I want to know why we are just now a year and a half into this, seeing some of the surveillance footage of Representative Loudermilk giving tours uh, to 15 people, not one or two people, 15 people. Yeah. Uh, and they're taking pictures of stairwells in the Capitol. This is post 
9-11. Now, I realize uh, Chief Manger was not there at the time, but this is post-9-11, and Chief Pittman didn't think that was suspicious after the 6th. And then we have the insurrection when Manger did come in, and he didn't think, wow, you know, after the insurrection, this is important. I think I should probably do something about this. He's a law enforcement officer first. If, if he wants to play po- politics, then he needs to run for office. He's a law enforcement officer first. Okay. There's one nice thing. That, I'm sorry, I got you all fired up, or I, it doesn't take much, actually. You're, fi- you're fired up already. Um, you wanted to tell me and you wanted to tell people about the letter you got from Prince William. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yes. So uh, tell us about that. Yes. So uh, I was very honored and humbled and in awe that uh, Prince William from England decided to take time out of his day, his busy schedule, to write me a letter to honor Brian's memory and to acknowledge my pain. Uh, I couldn't get a letter from President Trump. And if you recall, Brian's brothers were on CNN not that long ago because they attended the first hearing as well and also reiterated that same fact, that former President Trump does not give two craps about law enforcement or Brian. Uh, And yet Prince William took the time to reach out to me to honor Brian's memory. And I just think he is just a beautiful, wonderful person. And I'm saying this because his letter was dated November of last year, and I and just, just got just it several it. weeks ago. I'm sure, so, that he, yes. I'm sure he's okay with it. But yes. you know we also here at CNN and at The Lead, we honor Brian Sicknick's memory. Thank you And so we much. thank you and love to, uh, love to his family as well, everyone thank in his you. family. Thank you um, so The much. State Department now says a third American may be missing in Ukraine, and there are growing fears two U.S. veterans who disappeared while fighting alongside Ukrainian soldiers may be in the hands of the Russians. We're going to talk to the mother of one of the missing fighting Americans. Stay with us. In our world lead, U.S. diplomatic and military authorities are scrambling to gain information about two American volunteer fighters who are feared to have been held by Russian forces. 27-year-old Andy Tynaquin and 30-year-old Alex Druki are U.S. military veterans who traveled to Ukraine to combat Putin's forces. They've now been missing for just over a week. CNN's Barbara Starr joins us now from the Pentagon. Barbara, what are U.S. officials saying about the disappearance of these two veterans? Well, Jake, in the last several minutes, a photo has emerged, and we want to show it to people. It appears to show both men uh, in the back of a truck. In this photo, uh, I think you can see at the very bottom, there are food cans with Russian labels. They are, you see them there, they appear to have their hands behind their back. Now, the State Department has informed, we are told, the Druki family that this may be initial evidence that the men are being held by either Russian or Russian-backed forces in eastern Ukraine. They have been there fighting alongside Ukraine forces for some time, is our understanding. They were last seen on June 9th during a very uh, bitter battle very heavy combat north of Kharkiv uh, in eastern Ukraine. Other people went to look for them. They found no remains, no bodies. So there is somewhat of an assumption that they may be 
being held now. And that is the that is the challenge to find out exactly what has happened to these two men, find out where they may be, how to get them back to their families. The State Department uh, has, we are told, not yet been in direct contact with the Russians because they have no direct evidence yet that the Russians are holding them. The State Department in touch with the government of Ukraine and the International Committee of the Red Cross. Ev- We'll we'll have to wait and see now what how the next steps emerge. Jay. Barbara, there are reports of a third American who traveled to Ukraine to fight against Russia who has gone missing in recent weeks. What more can you tell us about that? Well, the State Department just now talking about that instance. Also, the same dilemma, trying to find out what happened to this person. What we should say is the State Department, the Pentagon and the White House have continuously since the beginning publicly urged Americans not to go to Ukraine, not to go there to fight. It is exceptionally dangerous. It is a combat zone urging Americans, if they want to support the people of Ukraine, to donate to charities, to find another way to support them rather than going there, Jake. But as we saw when I was in Ukraine and others have reported on it, a lot of veterans want to take up the fight and help the Ukrainian people themselves. They feel called to go. Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, thank you so much. Sure. Joining us now to discuss, Bunny Druki. She's the mother of Alex Druki, one of the Americans missing in Ukraine. Um, Bunny, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, my deepest uh, sympathies for you uh, and and this difficult time for you and your family. I understand you just got off the phone with the U.S. State Department. What did they have to say? Uh, Well, they said that there is a photograph that is being circulated on the Russian media, and they're working hard to verify it. Uh, We're very hopeful, and um, that's about all that I know right now. Have you seen the photo yet? We're showing it on TV right now, but, but okay, you have. What, I have seen it. Okay, good. What is your reaction to seeing your photo? Um, it, it seems he's, he's likely, if not in Russian custody, in the custody of pro-Russian forces. Um, how, how do you r- respond to that? How, how do you react? Well, Jake, I don't want to get my hopes up too high uh, because I know that Photoshopping is, you know, widespread now, but... I'm hopeful that it's an actual photo of them, that they are alive. Uh, the, whoever is in the photo doesn't look particularly hurt. Uh, the one that's supposed to be my son looks rather angry, and that sounds like my son. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope that it is. Uh, Alex and Andy have had all the training that they need to withstand, I think, anything that the Russians throw at them. And um, I'm, I'm just, you know, they're both very brave and strong men. So um, did Alex go over to, to fight, to take up arms because he was an experienced veteran? T- tell us more about why he went over. Alex put 12 years in the U.S. Army. He did two tours of duty in Iraq. And he felt that he was too old to fight but he was excellent at training soldiers. Uh, He had done a lot of that, not only on the tours, but also later in the Army Reserve. And he said, he thought about it for about a month or more, and he talked to me several times, and he said, Mom, I've got the skills to train these soldiers because the news reports were that the Ukrainians had they were just getting anybody that was volunteering and they did need training. And he says, and I also know how to operate the equipment that we're sending over there and I can teach them how to do it because he knew that this was the Ukrainians fight. 
He just wanted to be there in a support role. And um, so that's why he decided to go. He, he felt that if Putin wasn't stopped now, he would just become bolder with every success and that eventually he might end up on American shores. And Alex said, I love my country too much to let that happen. He may not have been in the military anymore, but he took that oath to defend and protect our country for life. Russia, as you I'm sure know, has detained Americans for, for months, even years, uh, including U.S. Marine uh, Paul Whelan, WNBA player Brittany Griner, Another Marine, Trevor Reed, was recently released after being held for almost three years. We, we had the honor to interview him. Um, are you worried about that? I, I understand right now you're feeling something of a sigh of relief that if that's a real photo, he's alive, which is, I understand that. But, right. but there also might be, it might be a long time before you get to see him again. I understand that. I went through that when he had his tour of duty in Iraq. Um, on a smaller scale, he was hiking the Appalachian Trail when COVID hit. And I knew that I wouldn't see him for at least five months uh, because he'd be off on the trail. So I'm, I'm used to him being away. Um, it's, you know, your children grow up and leave the nest. and Sometimes they move far away, you know. Well, he'll be turning 40 next week, I understand. So we will. we'll, we'll keep him... Uh, We'll keep covering the story. We'll keep talking to you, Bonnie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. A CNN exclusive, a letter found on a dead Russian officer shows that Moscow planned to take Ukraine in a matter of days. Now, months later, what Ukraine wants. Stay with us. In our world lead, the West is promising to help Ukraine. Today, leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and Romania visited the embattled country, and told President Volodymyr Zelensky that they back a fast track for Ukraine's candidacy to join the European Union. Although quick membership is something of a long shot, Ukraine's bid is likely getting under Putin's skin. CNN's Matthew Chance got an exclusive interview with the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, who says Ukraine is set on taking back not only the land it has lost this year, but also, ultimately, Crimea. This was the moment on the first day of this war. Russia's plan for a lightning strike on Ukraine started to unravel. We witnessed these lightly armed Russian airborne troops fighting for their lives. Now the Ukrainian defense minister tells CNN written military orders were recovered from the body of a Russian officer killed here, confirming his Russian commanders expected a quick and easy victory. He had to be in government quarter after 12 hours from the invasion, from the starting of invasion. Center of Kiev. Center of Kiev. He had to control government building, office of president, parliament, and and 72 hours after they was sure that, for example, president will be evacuated. In retrospect, that looks astonishingly naive, doesn't it? And, frankly speaking, our partners in the different capitals of the world also was naive. They also uh, told us that invasion are imminent and you will fall. You have only 72 hours. But for nearly four months now, Ukraine has been holding out, even defeating Russian forces near the capital with the help of armour-piercing weapons from the US and others. 
The Biden administration has already committed $40 billion to this fight. Another billion in aid was announced just this week. And the Ukrainian defense minister insists that Washington and its allies have assured him that support will continue. Our partners will never stop. I was told that. I spoke with uh, my, my friend uh, Austin, uh, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense of the United States, Secretary of uh, Defense of UK, Ben Wallace and our other colleagues. They told me, Alexei, don't worry, we will not stop. Do you really believe that that is a genuine commitment by the United States to continue to militarily back Ukraine into the future, no matter what? I heard yesterday and I felt that it's absolutely honestly. And the Ukrainians are honest too about what their new weapons will be for. Weapons like these state-of-the-art M777 artillery guns from the US that we were shown in southern Ukraine earlier this month. Or the multiple launch rocket launchers that will soon be in service here. The defense minister says they will help Ukraine take back occupied land. We are going to liberate all our territories. All of it? All of it. What about Crimea? Crimea is a Ukrainian land. For me, it's absolutely understandable. So you're saying that Crimea is a military objective of the Ukrainian armed forces uh, with this weapon? I, 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 I'm sure that Crimea is a strategic objection for Ukraine because it's a Ukrainian territory. But we, we will move step by step. I mean, the, 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 first, the first stage, it's stabilization. Right, the, the, re- the reason stage, I ask. I, I will finish yeah. my. The second stage, it's to kick them out till the uh, 24 February border uh, situation. And third stage, we will discuss it with our partners, how we will liberate uh, our territories, includes Crimea also. None of that will go down well in Moscow. And even with advanced Western weapons to replace these old Soviet ones, Ukraine looks set for a long fight. Well, that fight, and that fight, Jake, continues to be costly in terms of human lives. The defence minister saying tens of thousands of, of, of Ukrainians have already been killed, but refusing to be drawn on the exact number of military deaths. Back to you. Matthew Chance in Brussels, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A member of the January 6th Select Committee will join us next with a, with a look at what the public can expect in the next hearing. Stay with us. He resisted the pressure. He knew it was illegal. He knew it was wrong. We are fortunate for Mr. Pence's courage on January 6th. Our democracy came dangerously close to catastrophe. The January 6th Select Committee wrapping its third hearing just a short while ago. The committee laying out evidence that President Trump had been told several times that his scheme to push Pence to decertify the election by sending electoral votes back to the states was not constitutional, nor was it legal, yet Trump did it anyway. For more on today's hearing, I want to bring in California Congressman Adam Schiff, a Democrat. He's a member of the January 6th Committee, as well as chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. So, so, Congressman Schiff, we've now heard from several people who were close to Vice President Pence. Why hasn't the committee actually brought Mike Pence in to testify, either live or in a recorded testi- testimony? W- wouldn't hearing from him directly prove the committee's case so much more vividly than hearing from his aides? 
Well, we're not excluding the possibility of bringing him in, uh, but at this point uh, in the investigation and in our hearings, uh, we brought in the witnesses that we did, uh, and I think they were quite compelling. Uh, the videotape testimony of his chief of staff, the live testimony of his attorney, uh, you can often get uh, you know, every bit as good information uh, from some of the non-principals in the room uh, from, than from the principal. But again, not ruling out that uh, possibility uh, and we'll uh, just have to uh, take it as it goes. We learned today that Justice Department officials have been asking the committee, and, and in fact at least began doing so in April, to turn over about a thousand witness transcripts, but the committee, your committee, has so far refused. The Justice Department says they, they need this information as soon as possible uh, for their prosecutions and investigations. Why has the committee not cooperated with the Justice Department? Uh, we've been in dialogue with the Justice Department. Uh, you know, Jake, I've been uh, involved in several high-profile investigations. I've never seen the Justice Department say, give us all your files. Uh, and we're, we're working with them to make sure they get what they need, uh, consistent with the, our own investigative needs. But we want them to be successful. We want them to bring to justice anyone who broke the law. Uh, and we're confident uh, we will be able to help them uh, pursue uh, any of the lawbreakers involved. Um, but, uh, but again, I think the, the challenge is the breadth of their request. But we're going to work through it and make sure they get what they need. Well, they've prosecuted more than 800 people who actually stormed the Capitol that day in terms of lawbreakers. Are you looking at individuals above them, individuals who organized people to come to Washington, D.C.? Are you looking at John Eastman possibly as having committed criminal offense? We learned today that Eastman emailed Giuliani about getting a presidential pardon uh, after the events of January 6th. Well, that's right. And, of course, uh, Judge Carter out in California, uh, in his opinion now, I think uh, multiple times, uh, expressed the view based on the evidence uh, that he has seen that both Eastman and Donald Trump violated uh, two or three federal laws. Uh, so, you know, that's certainly my view that those issues need to be investigated by the Justice Department. Uh, our job is not a criminal responsibility. Our job is to find the facts, expose them to the public light and develop remedies to protect our democracy going forward. But I certainly believe, as Judge Carter articulated, that there's already evidence uh, sufficient to warrant the Justice Department doing its own investigation. I want to play this moment where former White House attorney for Trump, uh, Eric Hirschman, described a phone call he had with Rudy Giuliani. Morning of January 6th, I think he called me out of the blue. Right. And I was like getting dressed. And we had an intellectual discussion that, about Eastman's, uh, East, I don't know if it's Eastman's theory per se, but the VP's role. And you know, he was asking me my view and analysis and then the practical implications of it. And when we finished, he said, like, I believe that, you know, you're probably right. You're probably right. Uh, first of all, it must be weird for you to have Eric Hirschman saying so many things <laughs> that you agree with, given how, how you guys went after each other uh, and, each, uh, and, and squared off in the first impeachment of, of Donald Trump. Um, but talk about that, if you would, for a second, about Rudy Giuliani telling Eric Hirschman you're probably right and then going out publicly and saying the opposite. We see a lot of this going on in this hearing. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And you're right, first of all, about Mr. Hirschman 
people that don't remember his role in the first impeachment uh, may not remember he was among the most bombastic of the Trump lawyers. Uh, and, it, you know, it showed, you know, like so many of the other people working around the president defending him, that they got to a point where they could defend his conduct, his misconduct, no more. Uh, some got there sooner than others. Uh, it was very late uh, for Mr. Hirschman. But nonetheless, uh, we see this consistent theme of, uh, uh, of Giuliani acknowledging to Hirschman that, yeah, this is probably a bogus legal theory. Eastman acknowledging uh, to Greg Jacob, yeah, this probably we'd lose nine to zero in the Supreme Court, but we're doing it anyway. Um, you know, they understood exactly what they're doing, uh, but nothing mattered to them so much as keeping Trump in power, not our democracy, not anything else, not if it provoked violence. Uh, their only object, apparently, like Donald Trump's, was staying in office and, and uh, defying a tradition as old as our country of a peaceful transfer of power. Just to defend Eric Hirschman for one second, in the first impeachment trial, he was an attorney doing his job. In this, he's a witness. Uh, so there, there is a little bit of a difference, as I know you understand fully, fully well. Congressman, well, but, but Jake, you know, Mr. Hirschman was also working with Donald Trump all that time. He didn't start working as a defense lawyer for him. Uh, but, you know, again, it, it is a pattern. The same with Bill Barr. Yeah. Uh, Bill Barr... Uh, you know, intervened in the sentencing of Roger Stone, intervened to make cases go away against Michael Flynn. Uh, but he got to the point where he couldn't do what Donald Trump wanted him to do anymore. And, you know, thank goodness he got to that point eventually. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much. That's it for the lead. The Situation Room is right after this quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.